Uh, before we begin, I just have a very important announcement to make. There are pens on the bima, if anybody wants, and uh, the cups are not tovelled, they're porcelain. So that's it for the very important announcements. Bereshus <laughs> HaRabanim, speakers and esteemed guests, my name is Ari Rosenberg, and I am the Vice President of the YU Medical Ethics Society. I, along with my co-vice president and co-planner in today's event, Avital Meiri, who will be here shortly, are proud to welcome you to this morning's event, the Circle of Life, considering the ethical and halachic parameters of caring for aging parents. I want to begin by thanking the Center for the Jewish Future, and specifically Rabbi Brander, for enabling us to put together today's event. Additionally, I would like to thank Julie Schreier, who helped us with every step of the planning process, and without whom, honestly, we would still be working on the title of this event. And the presidents, Yosefa Shore and Mordechai Smith, who have put an enormous amount of work into this year's Medical Ethics Society. Finally, I would like to thank the Medical Ethics Society board members and volunteers for helping us in planning this event. I would also like to mention that this program has been generously sponsored by the Weichels family in memory of their parents, Zelda Bat Shmuel and Ben Zion Ben Baruch Mordechai. And our refreshments have been sponsored by Dr. Cloud Medical Technology Consultants. It is due to sponsors such as you that we are able to run events such as these throughout our communities, and we thank you very much. When we began in the development of this event, one of our board members had just lost a grandparent. And later, my only remaining grandparent suffered a minor stroke, but Baruch Hashem, he has recovered. One of the rabbis at YU, who we, were co who we contacted about this event, had just lost his parent. And another we contacted was on his way to Israel for his mother's yard site. And the list goes on. There was an obvious reason to me why this event held such importance. As a rabbi's son for almost 23 years, I have seen the torments and difficulties involved in catering to the needs of a beloved parent, and at the worst times, not knowing what those needs are. We call this event the circle of life because our loved ones, who we care for, have done the same for their parents, and so on and so forth. What we are privileged to have today is not a solution to any problem, but a couple of guiding hands in a dark hallway. A medical mentor of mine once recited for me a line in the Talmud, in Kedushin, which says that the best doctors go to Gehenna. He told me that his understanding of this passage was that when a patient is going through the very worst, he's walking through Gehenna. And the best doctors sharing in that pain are right there alongside them, holding their hand. We are privileged today to hear from two caring doctors and Rabbanim in their communities who have walked alongside many ill patients. Rabbi Dr. Richard Weiss and Rabbi Dr. Aaron Glatt. I would like to thank them for agreeing to join us this morning. We know your time and expertise are precious, and we appreciate your sharing it with us this morning. Rabbi Dr. Glatt is the assistant rabbi at Congregation Anshe Chesed in Hewlett and at the Young Israel of Woodmere. After graduating as class valedictorian of Yeshiva University, Rabbi Dr. Glatt received his MD from Columbia University. He is board certified in internal medicine and infectious diseases, and the author of over 200 articles, book chapters, and abstract presentations. Rabbi Dr. Glott was formerly president and CEO at St. Joseph Hospital in Bethpage, New York. 
He is currently Executive Vice President and the Chief Administrative Officer at Med Mercy Medical Center in Rockville Center, New York, as well as full professor and former Associate Dean at New York Medical College. Previously a professor at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, where he innovated the course Faith and Medicine, Rabbi Dr. Glott is a world-renowned and sought-after scholar in residence, lecturing on a wide variety of Jewish and medical topics. He has given a daily daf Yomi Shir for the last two decades and has authored the books Visiting the Sick and Women in the Talmud. Rabbi Dr. Weiss received his rabbinic ordination from the Rabbi Yitzhak Elchanan Theological Seminary of Yishin University. He earned his MD degree from Wayne State University uh, School of Medicine and is, licensed, is a licensed physician at the state of, in the state of New York. Having completed an internship in internal medicine at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, he is currently the rabbi of the Young Israel of Hillcrest in Queens and an adjunct assistant professor of biology at Stern College for Women of East University. He has served as a member of the Garris Commission of the RCA. In addition, Rabbi Weiss has a special interest in bioethics and, in particular, issues related to end-of-life care and infertility. He has lectured frequently on these topics and has served on a number of bioethics committees. He, he is a contributing author of Overcoming Infertility, A Guide for Jewish Couples, edited by Richard V. Grazi, MD, and published by Toby Press in 2005, as well as the author of Pain Management at the End of Life and The Principle of Double Effect, A Jewish Perspective, to be published in the journal Cancer Investigation. Rabbi Weiss has also served in the past as a staff physician for the Metropolitan Hospice, Jewish Hospice of Greater New York. So, without further ado, I would like to present our first speaker, Rabbi Dr. Glott. Please silence your cell phones and hold all questions and comments until after the end of both lectures. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. It's a tremendous honor and pleasure for me to be here with my dear friend, Rabbi Dr. Richard Weiss, on this very important panel to discuss with you a lot of questions. As was already stated, I certainly do not have the answers. But I will try to give you the words of Chazal, some experiences I've had in my career, looking at it from different perspectives as both a physician and as a rov and as a hospital chaplain, and try to give you some ways that you can go about addressing this problem. Each of us will try to focus on different aspects of this issue, but there will probably be some overlap, but it's good to hear different opinions anyway. I want to thank the uh, Student Bioethics Society of Yeshiva and all the offices and board members that are here, uh, and Ari, for inviting me today. It's uh, a wonderful thing that these students do. I look forward to Mitz Hashem calling many of them colleagues in the near future, and uh, Baruch Hashem, we're very fortunate to have such a, a wonderful crop of young men and women who are interested in halacha and in being part of the caring and compassionate healthcare community in whatever form or shape it will take. So I, I, I'm, I'm very confident about the future of Klai Yisrael when I see such young, wonderful men and women who have such a burning desire to, at a young stage in their lives and in their careers, to put together programs like this, and I've Baruch Hashem, been involved in a number of them. They're all excellent, and they deserve a tremendous amount of credit. And it's also my, my pleasure uh, to have uh, Mr. Jake Weichholz uh, and his family sponsoring this as members of the shul and his friends. 
I also had this chus of knowing both of his parents, Aleya Mashalom, his mother recently passed away, and it's a, it's a, a wonderful aliyah for her neshama, and for, for his father's neshama as well, that such a program is being sponsored by them. I want to start off my comments to say, first of all, there's an Indian not only for parents, but there's an Indian for in-law parents as well. And I'll read you a very quick line from Shulchan Aruch, very, very short. A person has an obligation to honor his father-in-law. So without going into all the technical details, I have an opportunity here to thank my father-in-law. He was the one that provided me with my set of Yoridea and, and Shulchan Aruch. So I'm learning from that today. It's from that he had this course to learn from. He's a Musmach from, from Reeds from Yeshiva University. So Baruch Hashem, we're carrying on the Misorah. And I have the, the, the honor of learning from his Sefer that he gave to me. As importantly, I'm dedicating the Shir Lila Nishmas, my mother-in-law, Esther Etel Bazalman Yosef, who was Nifteris just two, three months ago, a short while ago. And we're still, my wife's still in the year. We're still in the year of Avelis for her. She was a very special woman, and all of the ideas that I'm going to be discussing today in terms of the difficulties of dealing with, with parents as they get older, I Baruch Hashem had the best Rebbe in the world, which is my wife, to teach me how to properly treat her, both her parents, my father-in-law, from my mother-in-law, Lea Shalom, as well as the unbelievable way that she treats my mom and my father, Oliver Shalom. So uh, I really dedicate this to her and to, and to her and to her mother, and uh, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Where do you start in a, in a shear like this? It, it's almost impossible to truly get, even in the, the two hours that we have, anywhere near just the scratching of the surface of this very important subject. It's a very difficult talk. Everybody in this room either has faced or is facing or will face this problem. Maintaining your loved one's dignity when they're going through aging process. For some people, it's beginning in the 40s, in the 50s. Hopefully, it begins in the 90s, 100s, as Baruch Hashem, life continues and people are living longer. But everyone is going to have to face this, and I'll tell you a little secret. We're all going to be in those shoes one day. Im Hashem, because the alternative isn't good. So this is a problem which, first of all, Chazal tell us, you have a chance to predict your own future. The way you treat your parents will probably, not a guarantee, but probably be the way your children treat you. So be very careful in this problem because you get exactly what you reap. And Chazal tell us that one of the best ways to guarantee Arichus Yomim, which is the promise for Kibbutz Aim is to show the proper respect for your parents and your children, therefore your grandchildren, great-grandchildren, will know how to show respect for you. They'll see by example. It's really the truly the best way for a person to go into this mitzvah, to go into this from a selfish point of view. Forget the ideal to be doing lishma. But if we all keep in mind that we're setting the stage for our own aging process, that's something that will humble us a little bit and maybe push us to, to try a little bit harder in many of these things. We're going to read in this week's parsha, as we've already read many times, about the death of Nadav and Avihu. Nadav and Avihu were two of the greatest people who ever lived in Klai Yisrael. 
And one of the reasons, of the many reasons that Chazal tell us that Nadav and Aviyu died, I'll give a little plug for, for why you connects, which is such an important organization. So one of the reasons was that they didn't get Shidduchim. They didn't get married. They, they weren't able to find the Shidduch. And they were held accountable for that. All of us are accountable for that. Why you connects to such wonderful work in helping to make Shidduchim. But another reason the Chazal give us over here is that, in fact, they were unfortunately lacking somewhat in the covert for their parents, Moshe and Aaron, their uncles, their father. And they said, when will these great Rabbonim die so we can take over? And some of the Chazal interpret this. How could they be so chutzpahdik to say such a thing? And some of the Chazal tell us that they were so close to their parents, they didn't see them as Moshe and Aaron. It said, Bikrovai Ekodesh, with my relatives, Krovai, some teaches, my relatives, I will sanctify Klai Yisrael. They treated Moshe and Aaron, not as Moshe and Aaron, but as dad, and as Uncle Moshe. Different Uncle Moshe. And they treated HaKadosh Baruch Hu as a result, in a less than ideal way. We have to remember that our parents are not just our parents. They're gimel shutfim ba'adam. They're three partners in the making of a person. The father, the mother, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And when we treat our parents in any way other than the ideal, perfect way, which is, as we'll see, almost impossible for someone to do, we are essentially treating HaKadosh Baruch Hu in a less than ideal way. It's very important for us to keep that in mind every second of every part of this discussion and how to take care of elderly parents properly is that it's as if we're saying how do we take care of HaKadosh Baruch Hu properly? And if we keep that always in mind it sometimes makes the burden and sometimes it's a very heavy burden makes that burden a little bit easier to carry. You literally are doing God's work every single second when you're taking care of your elderly parents. Another idea I want to say from yesterday's parasha that we read. Pasuk tells us, in If you follow in this path, if you do the mitzvahs, you do all the chukim, so you know what happens? Vasisem osom. You shall make them. What does that mean? Vasisem osom. You shall do them. So the word osam is written deficient. It's missing the vav. So many tie it up and say, vasisem atem. If you want to be a mensch, if a person wants to make a man, so following the chukim, following the mitzvot that HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells us, that is how you create a mensch. If you want to strive to be a good person, you can't do it on what you think, on what your ethics, what your morals, what your values tell you. But you've got to go by what HaKadosh Baruch Hu says. And sometimes there can be a dichotomy, there can be a divergence of opinion between what you think is best and what HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells us is best. And we have a certain arrogance about us sometimes that we know better. Of course this is the way to do it. If the Halacha says that's not the way to do it, if Chazal tells us that's not the way to do it, so we have to subordinate our own emotions, our own psychology, our own driving forces 
We have to subordinate that to HaKadosh Baruch Hu's way of doing things because HaKadosh Baruch Hu is right. It's, it's not even close. It's, it's an absolute. The The ways of HaKadosh Baruch Hu are pleasant and beautiful. And we sometimes have to spend a little bit more time understanding that. With that little introduction, I'd like to start talking about the practical details that we need to do. I want this to be a very practical talk. I will hopefully bring sources to support what I'm going to say. Again, I don't have the answers, but I can bring maybe a little bit more focus to questions and see how Chazal, at least in an ideal sense, would like us to look at the problem. Everybody here is familiar with the famous story of Doma ben Nesina. Doma ben Nesina was a non-Jewish person who the Gemara uses as a paradigm of Kibbut Ava'ein. One of many paradigms, one of many examples of how far a person has to go to honor their parents. Everybody's familiar that he had the keys to the, the jewelry box under his father's pillow. And his father was sleeping. The Beis HaMikdosh people came to him and said, the breastplate of the coin God was missing one of the diamonds, the Yahalom. We'd like to buy it from you. We understand you have one. We'll pay you a phenomenal amount of money. We need it today. If we don't get it from you, we're going to get it from somebody else. And he'd have to wake up his father. And he said, I'm not waking up my father for anything. He lost out on that deal. But he gave us a high mark that we have to strive for in terms of serving one's parents. Chazal tell us he was rewarded. He was given a paraduma, a very rare creation. Kodesh Baruch gave him in his flock. He was able to sell it for exactly the same price a year later. He didn't lose out. God makes sure you never lose out. That's an important idea to remember. That whatever you're doing for your parents, you're guaranteed you're not losing from it. So you missed the Nick game today because you have to take care of your parents. You'll make up for it. HaKosh Baruch will give you a couple of extra years of life. You'll get to see another series that you might not have otherwise been Zoha to live for. You definitely make it back. That's the promise that you get when you take care of your parents. You're going to make it back one way or the other. You're not losing anything by doing this mitzvah. Dharma ben Nesina is the example to show us you didn't lose anything. Here he was, Mark tells us, a phenomenal amount of money. 600 or 800,000 golden dinarim. Let's even assume that that means a dollar. Probably means maybe a hundred dollars each one. He lost out on a phenomenal profit because he didn't want to wake his father up. There's a separate question. The post can go through the discussion. Would your father be upset that you didn't wake him up? So maybe you're supposed to wake him up. That's a separate question. Shiloh comes up all the time. Your father's asleep, and you know he wants to go to Mincha, Shabbos afternoon. But he's sleeping. So the thing is, you're supposed to wake him up. If you know he wants you to wake him up, father says, please wake me at 6 o'clock for the Shia and Mincha. So it's 5.45, you look, well, he's sleeping, I don't want to wake him up. No, he wants you to wake him up for the Shia. He wants you to wake up for Mikhail, then you're supposed to. So don't learn that from that Gemara. But we can learn out many things from that Gemara. But that's not what I wanted to bring that story forward, because the next part of the Gemara is not as famous, and not as well known. And there the Gemara tells us, the Ravdimi tells us the follow-up to the story, or an additional part of the story that's not as well known. And the Gemara says, the Dhamma Nesina was one dr- once dressed in something called the Sirkon Zahav, a fancy garment. 
He was wearing his best Shabbos suit. Very, very expensive garment. And what happened? He was sitting in the Senate in Rome. So, let's put it into our parlance. You're invited to a state dinner with President Obama and Benjamin Netanyahu and everybody of importance in your life is at that dinner. And you're there, your finest Shabbos garment, you have maybe rented something because your finest Shabbos garment doesn't even match up to that type of a level of state dinner. It's costing you an arm and a leg for that garment. And then your mother walks in, which is exactly what happened to Dalai Benesina. He was in that state dinner in Rome, in the Senate in Rome. His mother walks in, and what does she do? She rips the tuxedo off him. She walks up to him. She unfortunately was, was not compass mentis. She didn't have her full faculties. She walks up to her dear son and rips his cloak, the expensive cloak, in the middle of the state dinner. Obama, Netanyahu, and the Roman Caesar are all watching. And what's his response? How does Doma Ben respond to this? Sits there and does nothing. So you know what his mother does? She takes off her shoe and she starts giving him a zetz. And another zetz. And another zetz. But what does Dhamma Benesina do? Nothing. And then she drops the shoe. And what does Dhamma Benesina do? Picks up the shoe and here says, Here, mom, here's the shoe that you dropped. That's how far a person has to humble himself, subject himself even to tzoras like that in order to care for an elderly parent. We don't have to go to the non-Jewish world to see wonderful examples of Kibbutz of Aim. The Gemara in Kedushin and a lot of the basic source material for what I'm saying is from the Gemara in Kedushin, Daf Lamed, Lamed Omid Beis, Lamed Aleph, Lamed Beis, people that want to look at beautiful stories of Kibbut Avaim and see source material for Kibbut Avaim. If you look in the Gemara over there, Rav Yosef, Rav Yosef was blind. I think that's why it says, Ki habishama kol karodime, when he heard his mother's footsteps approaching. What did he do? Akum, he would stand up. I ask you a question, how many of us stand up when our parents walk into the room? Don't answer. This is how long are you supposed to stand up when your parents walk in the room? No, I already told my children I'm Michael on it. I'm allowed to be Michael on it. We hope that all of our parents are Michael on it. I don't want to be the cause of my kids not not not, not uh, be Mekayim Mitzvah. So parents are allowed to be Moichla. But the Edson Din, I heard from my Rabbein, don't be Moichla at 100% of the time. Some of the Gdolim would say, the first time you see me in the morning, stand up. The last time you see me at night, stand up. I don't go that far practically. But this Allah, when your parent walks into the room, you have to stand up for them. If your Rebbe walked into the room, everybody knows you stand up. It's same Din. For a parent, you have to stand up if they walk into the room. He heard his parent walking he was blind. He heard them. He would stand up already. Maybe already even coming into the room. He didn't want to take any chances. And listen to the Lashem that he uses. 
I'm standing up because God is coming. The presence of God is entering the room when your parents enter the room. This is based upon the idea. There are three partners in the world in creating a person. It's not two. There's three. God, the Gemara actually goes into detail as to which of the three parents that a person has contributes what to the body. Father contributes this, the mother contributes this, HaKosh Baruch contributes this. So it's not just a metaphysical idea. The Gemara talks about it more in a real concept that HaKosh Baruch is your parent. And therefore, when your parent comes into the room, the Shekhinah is coming into the room. And Rav Yosef would stand up. We have another story, Rav Tarfin, probably a little bit better known. Ritarfin's mother was walking and she lost her shoe. It was on Shabbos, she couldn't fix the shoe. So Ritarfin went to put his hand down on the ground. Must have been painful. So his mother could step on his hand and take the next step, put his hand down again so she could step. So her foot shouldn't touch the ground, the gravel, the, the difficulty of walking barefoot on the ground. Ritarfin, the God Ladar, wasn't beneath his dignity to literally be a footstep, a shoe for his mother in public. This is in the Rishus Sarabim. This wasn't, okay, nobody's watching, it's not so bad. The whole world was, what? the Gemara records this for all time. Was it below his dignity to do this for his mother? Rabbi Tarphone was literally the stepping stool for his mother to get in and out of bed. He would crouch down and she would step on his back to get up into his bed. He would stay there in the morning. He had to be awake to make sure that she didn't get up out of bed without him. He'd crouch down so she could get off the back, step on his off the bed, step on his back, so she could get off the bed comfortably without having to jump down. And there are other stories, and on and on I could go. So how do we define what we're supposed to do? How are we supposed to take care of our parents, practically? Lamaisa. So the Gemara tells us, again, Kiddush and Lamed Aleph, Ezeu Kavod, what is the definition of honoring your parents? There's a separate thing of mora, having awe of your parents. I'm not going to discuss that today. Honoring your parents. There are six things that the Gemara says, brought down in Shulchan Aruch, Halacha Lamaisa, word for word. The Gemara says, Ezehu Kibud, what is the definition of honoring your parent? There's six things. Machel umashke. You have to feed your parents, you have to give drink to your parents. Machnis umotzi. You have to go bring your parents to places, take your parents from places. You're their chauffeur. And the middle two, I went a little bit out of order. The middle two are malbish umechase. To clothe them. To make sure that they're comfortably dressed. That they have basically their needs taken care of. Their food, their housing, getting them to and from places, and their clothing. The basic physical needs of your parents are your responsibility. Now granted, the halacha says you're allowed to ask them to pay for it. If you look in Shulchan Aruch, it says all of these things are Michel Lohem, are from them. But I want to read you the Lashon 
that's brought down by the Taz. And he says, if you can afford it and your parents can't, and you want to go and say, I'm not paying for this, so it says, Me'ira, a curse should come upon such a person that doesn't go and take care of his parents from his own pocket. Baruch Hashem, if you're capable of doing so, and you don't do things because of the financial involvement, it's too expensive to do this. I have to hire somebody? Keep it up, it's from their pocket, not my pocket. That's a horrible thing to say. A curse should come upon somebody. The halacha says, yes, minadim. And it says, if you have to take your stock of money for it, that's also terrible if you can afford it otherwise. If a person's barely getting by, and he gives his 10% of money to tzedakah, and he's eking out a living, paying tuition, all the things that are difficult in life, and he's barely getting by, so then he can take his stalker money and use that to support his parents. But again, if that's what you have to do, but if that's all you can do, that's what you can do. But if Baruch Hashem, you don't need to take the stalker money, you have money that you can afford to do it. So then you're mechuyiv to do this, even though you're not mechuyiv to do it. Because it's going to be far worse. A curse comes upon you if you're not obligated to do it, and you don't do it. That's worse in some ways than saying you're obligated to do it. I heard once from my rabbin, there's a famous tshuva, I can't locate it at the present moment. Somebody asked one of the gedolim in Europe, said, I have to go to Warsaw, I think it was, I don't remember the exact details, forgive me if the cities are wrong. He said, that's where my parents live. But the train ticket to Warsaw is uh, 500 rubles, whatever the currency was. She says, who has to pay for that? My parents or me? She says, you're not mechuyiv to go take the train to Warsaw. She says, start walking. You want to take the train? That's, not, that's for your benefit. You've got to pay for the train. Don't tell me, Michelle Lahem, that they have to pay for the train. No. You have to be there. So you want to take a train rather than walk? That comes out of your pocket. And furthermore, what happens if you have parnosa that you have to make? You have a job you have to do. So again, it depends where you are in your financial state in life. If this is the third job of the day that you have because you can't make the bills, you can't pay the tuitions, you can't bring bread on your table, so then you might be exempt. But if this is, Baruch Hashem, you got enough money to last you for your great-grandchildren's lives if you give each of them an endowment. Baruch Hashem. And now you want to work because, you know... Person has a hundred, always wants two hundred. That's the natural nature of a person. Chazal tell us, and that's what's preventing you from doing keyboard of aim. So the end, hundred percent, you're not allowed to do that. You have to go to the parent. Again, each case needs to be individualized. You have to say, well, if I lose my job, so then. That's no good. So granted, I have enough money if I work till 9 to 5, but they expect me to work to 9. If I don't work to 9, then I won't have the 9 to 5. So that's a different situation. And somebody says, listen, I work in myself, I make enough money, but I'd like more. So you might have that elective choice, although you have to answer yourself, what about the shear that I'm missing? What about all the minyanim that I'm missing? That's a separate question. Here we're talking just about kibbutz aim. So if that money is truly extra, so you have a chiv to go kibbutz avayim, or at least to pay for the kibbutz avayim, if you're not able to do it yourself, to hire the attendants, to hire whatever services are necessary to take care of your parents. Because that's your obligation to take care of them from your pocket. 
If you're going to hire somebody to do it, so then the obligation is yours, not theirs. Because you have the obligation to feed them. If you don't have the time to feed them and you have to hire somebody to feed them, that's your favor. So you have to pay for it. And not the Kibbutz Amy Shalahem. It comes out of their pocket. So that's one of the things that I was asked to address specifically, the financial obligations. Again, we're just scratching the surface. But that's an important idea that people mistakenly sometimes think, the Gomorrah says, Mishalohem, it comes from the parents, and I'm part to if they don't pay for it. That's not true. Lomaisa, it's just not true. Let's look at some of the practical things that we have over here. In terms of how you're supposed to be Michael Umashkeva. At the end, please. At the end. We'll have plenty of time for questions at the end. Michael Umashkeva. You have to feed them. You have to give them food. I'm going to say something that the medical profession may not love so much, but I'm going to say it anyway. Elderly parents are not the ones that you absolutely have to watch their cholesterol and their salt and sugar intake within reason. If they're vibrant, 95-year-old, and the sugar's out of whack, you can't tell them, well, sure, have another cookie, Dad. But if they're not in that situation... And they have a terminal illness or some other medical problem that's going to probably not make a difference if they have a low-salt diet or not. But the doctors are doing what they're taught to do, which is tell them to be on a low-salt diet. Eat the second plate of chocolate to their heart's content. Have the extra piece of chocolate cake to their heart's content. It's not always that the doctor's right. Seichel always trumps medical advice. And again, you have to look at each case. And please do not leave this room and say that the 70-year-old diabetic, glad said, give him as much sugar as you want. <laughs> but the elderly, somewhat demented parent who's not going to undergo aggressive management for the chemotherapy that they would if they were 45. And it's not such a big deal if their blood pressure is not perfectly controlled because you're not worried about a stroke or renal disease 25 years later. They're 103. They only got 17 years left. So use common sense. Be machu and mashke them with stuff that they enjoy. Don't take away pleasure from them because of things that don't make sense medically, halachically, or emotionally. Use common sense. They come to your house, you go to their house to prepare the meals, prepare what they like. Don't prepare what's easy. Mom loves this type of cake, so make it for her. Instead of buying the store-bought kind. It doesn't make a difference. It doesn't make a difference. I'm not telling you to go do extra work. So maybe she likes the store but better. And she will be last 30 years. She said, oh, I love your cake. <laughs> Feed them stuff that they like. Let them eat what they want. Don't make them finish their vegetables before you give them dessert. Even though they made you do that. <laughs> That's not the mida connected mida that you want to do. Don't embarrass the parents with the eating. They may not be able to eat so neatly and cleanly. And they spill something on them, learn to say, Mishkefelch. So they stained the shirt. You cleaned the shirt. You put on a new shirt after the meal. They really don't want a bib in front of all the people at the table. So don't put a bib on them. How would you like to have a bib on you? Everybody else around you doesn't have a bib. So they were a little sloppy. They can't cut up their food so easily. So 
I think the word is French plated. I wouldn't have a clue what that meant. Cut it up in the kitchen, and everybody gets their own plated food. You don't have to embarrass them. Sometimes it's not an embarrassment. It's no big deal. If it's amongst the media family, so, you know, grandma, grandpa needs to have the food cut up. No big deal. They don't mind. You don't mind. But you're having a nice su'udo with, uh, with uh, fancy friends and relatives. They don't know that grandma is now at the point where she has trouble because of arthritis to cut up the meat. So plate it in the kitchen. So plate it in the kitchen. So that the whole world doesn't see her being embarrassed. Very practical, easy to do. Think ahead. You have other ideas. I want to read you your Shalmi. Come on and pay you. It's alluded to in the Tosis and the Babli, but the Yushami is much more full. And it tells us there a very important idea. And it's brought down to Shulchan Aruch. You can sometimes feed your parent pheasant under glass. Filet mignon. Really, really expensive stuff. And you go to Gehenna. Out of your pocket. And at other times, you can make your parent do back-breaking labor and you go to how could that be? And essentially, in a nutshell, the Yushami says it's all about the attitude. Yushami tells a story that this one rich guy fed his parents, his father gave him the biggest delicacies, the facet under glass that actually uses that type of an expression, some really fancy uh, fowl dish, F-O-W-L. And the father said, wow, this is so expensive. How can you afford this? And the Gemara says in Yushami, he told him to be silent like a dog. Just eat. Don't worry about how I got it. Chutzpah. Here he is, he's spending 50 bucks for the, for the steak for his, for his father. He goes straight to Gehenna. He's trying to take care of his parents. Probably was a good person in, in heart. But his attitude was, just eat. That's my job, to be Michael and you. Don't worry how I got it. Just eat. Leave me alone. Totally wrong. The other hand, the Yushami says, another person made his father work in his millery, doing back-breaking work in the millery. I mean, the turn, the grindstone. And it says he goes to Ganeidin. How did that work? So Yushami says that the king had selected his father to be the king's servant, which was extremely embarrassing. Work did he have to do? Clean the king's toilets? Be the, the beck and call of the king in the middle of the night, the king wants a glass of water, he'd have to get up? Very hard, difficult work, embarrassing work. Not as hard, however, physically as the back-breaking millery work that he had to do. So the son said, I will take your place, and I'll be the buffoon for the king. I'll be the servant to the king. Somebody has to do the millery, so you'll do the millery. And he saved his father embarrassment. And it says he was Yorish Ganeidin. Made his father do backbreaking work, but with the right attitude, with the right reason, for the right purpose. My mommy, she lives in Be Well, comes over to us. She's not physically capable of doing a lot of things. But she loves and wants to do stuff. She loves to wash the dishes. How can I have my mom come and wash the dishes for me? So my response is, Mom, please sit down. 
please, let me wash the dishes for you. But it's a bigger cover for me to let her wash the dishes. We, we don't fold normally our plastic bags that you get the, the supermarket bags, the, you save them for garbage bags, or for, we don't fold them. My mom's a very, very exact person. So she folds all those bags. So we save all the bags. If anybody has extra bags that would like us to fold, <laughs> it makes her feel so useful. She feels like a person. So sometimes giving them work to do is a positive, not a negative. Even though, in an objective point of view, Ma, please sit down. I'll do it. No, sometimes you have to go against your grain and say it's a bigger cover to let them feel useful. There is nothing as difficult, but it says by the Avodas Perech that we did in Mitzrayim, it said that they made us build cities and the cities then collapsed. There's nothing as difficult as doing work that has no purpose to it or having no purpose in life. And elderly people sometimes, okay, I, I'm not making money anymore. I don't have uh, ability to learn or to, or to teach or, or to do things for my children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. So I'm useless. And that's terribly depressing. Any way you can make them feel useful again is an unbelievable keyboard of uh, a... What happens if they're so far gone? Never. Nitrofoditum. They're so far gone very difficult to care for them. Are you exempt? So the answer is you're never really exempt. But if you're not able to care for them in the proper way, you can't pay for other people to take care for them. Putting somebody in a nursing home sometimes is the best aids. If their dignity can't be preserved, toiletry, toileting, basic activities of daily living are sometimes more embarrassing if they're done by a son or a daughter or a daughter-in-law or son-in-law. So sometimes you have to ask other people to be involved. That's a covered also. If you can't do it yourself, if you're incapable of doing it in a way that's bechavadik, so then you have to get help. That's not a lack of doing keyboard of aim. That's part of the mitzvah of keyboard of aim. Malbish umechasa. Make sure they're comfortable in their dress. Sometimes we have these images that we have to have our parents dressing up in difficult, fancy clothing, difficult to put on, difficult to take off. They may not have an ability to take off all their garments quickly to go to the bathroom anymore. Their fingers aren't dexterous. Their ability to walk isn't so, so good. And what you, no big deal for me to unbutton a whole bunch of buttons. To them, that's 10, 15 minutes. They want to be independent. They don't want you to help them all sorts of other difficult garments to put on and put off. Make sure you're dressing them comfortably. They should wear Shabbos Begadim. But the Shabbos Begadim don't have to be the same Shabbos Begadim they wore when they were 50. Fancy Shabbos Begadim can exist that are nice and comfortable also. can be a special house coat for Shabbos. That they can makayim kibbutz Shabbos. And at the same time be able to get to the bathroom and not soil themselves and not have other problems. Because you're still dressing them in an inappropriate fashion. Make sure that their clothing is easy to get on and get off. Make sure that their needs are taken care of in terms of physical needs to assist them to get to the bathroom, to take care of their basic activities of daily living. 
Ezu Chacham Haroas Hanolat. You have to look around. When the visiting nurse services, they come to the house, one of the things they assess is how can we make the living area more comfortable and safe for them. So sometimes, Baruch Hashem, your parents aren't at the stage where they need a professional to come in. But you can come in and say, gee, you could use a bar in the shower so you don't slip. To make sure that that gets installed for your parents. Who do I call? What do I do? It can be very difficult. For you, you Google something. They don't know what Google is, maybe. So you Google it, you, you arrange for it online, and you can take care of it. And even if you get reimbursed for them eventually, but you can take care of these things. That's part of Malbishu Machase, taking care of all of their needs. The question arises, what about taking care of their medical needs? For the doctors or nurses in the room, can you take care of your parents professionally? So some things yes, some things preferable no. The person needs to have blood drawn from them. So there, there's an isser in causing a, a chavala to a parent that involves loss of blood. But at the same time, if you're able to do it in their house, and otherwise they'd have to schlep to the hospital or to the doctor's office or to the blood drawing station. So again, shilas sometimes need to be asked. The basic thing is if somebody else can do it, somebody else should do it. But if it's going to be such a tircha or tsar or difficulty for them, so they may be hitayim for you to assist in, in providing certain types of care that would otherwise be awesome. Finally, machnesu motzi. This is almost done. Machnesu motzi. What does that mean? It means being available to take your parents' places. It also means sometimes knowing when to take the car away. That's probably the single most frequently asked question and the most difficult thing sometimes to do is to take away the car from an older parent usually you do it after the second or third car accident hopefully they're minor sometimes you do it after you drive with them at some point that question is going to need to be asked and it's one of the most difficult things for a parent to do is to lose that control I can't go to the shul anymore without you picking me up. It's too far for me to walk. It's four-tenths of a mile away. I walked it all my life, but now it's too hard. So I go over there by car. And now you're taking that away from me? So the answer is, you've got to arrange transportation for them. You have to figure out how you can drive them yourself for a chaver, a friend that's going at the same time. Maybe you have to pay for somebody to do it out of your pocket because it's your responsibility. Get a car service, get a friend, go, oh, I always come this way, even though they're going a little bit out of their way, and make it up to them in some way, shape, or form. That's part of machnes umotzi, making sure that they're going to their doctor's appointments, helping arrange those doctor's appointments, making sure the medicines are where they're supposed to be, getting those medicines. It'd be very difficult sometimes for older people to navigate the healthcare system, which is a changing system. And uh, this is paid for, that's not paid for, with the insurance, I don't understand it. This is all part, I think, of machnus umotzi, obligations that the son and daughter has to their parent to help arrange all of these things for the parent. Easier said than done. Parents sometimes want that control, but they physically can't do it. You have to figure out a way to not take away the independence and make them feel like they're ayvabutl, like they're, they're no longer capable of handling their affairs. You have to do it in a bechavadik way, but you have to make sure that it gets done. Visiting them is such a critical thing. I can tell you my mom, she lights up. She's a different person when her great-grandchildren come to her, King Yerba. She's a different person. She may not be fully with it at other times, 
She may not remember all the great-grandchildren's names, but when they come, she lights up. She gets on the floor and plays with them, even though she's physically not able to do that any other time of the day. She wants to pick them up, even though that's not a good idea. But they become different people. So yes, it's very difficult to arrange time to go and visit. And sometimes they don't remember that you visited two hours later. But make the effort. If your kids can't do it, bring the grandchildren yourself. The chiv's on you. Grandchildren have a certain chiv to honor their grandparents. It's a lesser chiv than the child does to the parent. So you pick up the grandchildren, your grandchildren, and bring them to your parents. There's nothing like the hanor that they get, in my experience, personally, as well as from other people, when they're with their families. Invite them to those family gatherings. Invite them to the simchas, even though it's a tircha. Who's going to watch Ma during the chasana? And we have to split it up. And it's your chasana that you're making. So get somebody to be in charge of Ma, but make sure she's there. Don't say, well, she's not going to remember anyway the next day. And why does she have to go to the Sheva Brochus? It's too much of a tircha for her. It's too much of a tircha for you. It's no tircha for her whatsoever. These are the types of machnu sumotzi, I think, that are obligations for a child, for the father or mother. Finally, I, I conclude with something that the, the Ksav Sofer says. Ksav Sofer says that nothing is difficult that the Torah asks us to do. If the Torah asks us to do something, if HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to do something, by definition, it's easy to do. God doesn't want us to do difficult things. That's not to say that it's not difficult. But if you're doing it l'shem shamayim, it becomes easier. If you understand that you're doing at that moment exactly what God wants you to do, then how can it be difficult for you, the Ksav Sofa says. Not that it's not difficult. Yeah, picking physically up a parent, besides the time involved, time the expense that may be involved, it is difficult. He's not saying it's not difficult. But it becomes not difficult when you realize at that moment in time you are doing exactly what God asked you to do. How many times can we say that? When you're learning Torah, you know you're doing exactly what God wants you to do. In Shemona Esrei, it says when you're you're answering Kedusha, it says that's exactly what God wants you to do. But most of the day, it's not in those type of activities. How do I know when I'm at work, I'm doing Kiddush Hashem, Nachil Hashem? How do I know that I'm not doing Bittal Torah? How do I not, I'm not doing Lashon Hara, or Gezel, or all sorts of other things? You don't always know. You think you're doing good, but you may not. But when you're spending time with your parents, by definition, you're doing a wonderful thing. And you're doing exactly what HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants. Be'ezus Hashem, now listening to these ideas from Chazal, my hope and prayer that I can be a better person, a better son to my wonderful mother. I see, as I said, the example that my wife and others have done to my parents and, and to their parents. Mitzvah we should all be able to learn and be better. And Mitzvah the Arichas Yom and Bishonim that were promised, we should be healthy and able to enjoy that Arichas Yom and Bishonim. Thank you very much. Good morning, thank you very much.
First, I want to again thank the Yeshiva University Students Medical Ethics Society, the presidents, coordinators, sponsors of this event locally, as well as the Israel Woodmere, Rabbi Dr. Glad, Rabbi Billet as well. And uh, happy to see that events are happening here and that, uh, although clearly not, not completely, well, that uh, beyond the hurricane previously several months ago, the community is, is moving on with uh, the appropriate wonderful rabbinic and lay leadership that it has. I had the benefit of, of hearing Rabbi Dr. Glass' presentation, so I'm going to use that a little bit to kind of intersect with some of his comments and address some of that as well. So out of fairness, uh, when I finish, if Rabbi Dr. Glad wants to make any... No, just in terms of... The, <laughs> that didn't come, so can we erase that part? I didn't, uh, that, uh, by all means, and then open up to, to questions. So I just want to begin... Rabbi uh, Glatt made reference to the concept of honoring a parent being a form of honoring God, the Shechina. So the Druthers of the Minchas Chinuch has a discussion, the fact that the fifth commandment, the fifth of the Yasser Sedibros is Kibbut of Aim. So Minchas Chinuch has a discussion that there is a concept that the first half of the Yasser Sedibros relate to Benodom La Makom, between man and God, Shabbos, for example, idolatry, and the last five deal with between interpersonal, not coveting, not uh, stealing, not kidnapping, whatever the case may be. So the fifth one, so the discussion that maybe it was placed fifth to indicate that it really is a combination and integration of the two. That every aspect of Kibbutz aim of honoring and respecting a parent, has both a dimension that uh, is, if you will, a relationship between myself and God, as well as my relationship between myself and interpersonal human beings, in this case my parents, so that it has both aspects, just to kind of uh, reinforce that idea as well. I had a, a Rebbe many years ago in Detroit, uh, Rabbi Hillel Litwak, L-I-T-W-A-C-K. He moved many years ago, he lives in Brooklyn. So he wrote a sefer, we actually, I was learning Kiddushin with him uh, that year. It's one of the shiurim that we had. And he subsequently wrote a very nice, concise, very brief, but very, very uh, involved in very, very, I think, well-presented Sefer called Sefer Kibbut of Aim. And the first half of the Sefer quotes, like Rabbi Glatt did, many of the Mamari Chazal, many of the Talmudic, Rabbinic, Midrashic references to parent relationships with children. And the second half discusses the Shulchan Aruch, the details of Halacha. So in there he quotes from the Sefer Charedim, commenting on the Pasuk that we'll recite next week, Kabed Esavicha Vesimecha. So the Sefer Haredim suggests that the Pshuto Shal Mikra, the very basic fundamental translation of that obligation of Kibbut of Aim, is, as he puts it, Kabed Esavicha Vesimecha, Chayev Lechabdom Bedibur, Shiedabr Lehem Benachas, Beloshon Raka, Vikibud, Vaadnus, Kemedabr Lamelech, Zehu Pshuto Shal Mikra, that the obligations that are the fundamental practical ones that Rabbi Glad elucidated about feeding and drinking and clothing and the rest, that's not the Pshuto Shal Mikra. That's based on Xereshava, that's based on the Torah Shabal Peh, the oral tradition that expounds and extrapolates on the Psukim and gives the other interpretations which are also binding Minha Torah biblically. But the fundamental basic translation and definition of Kabedes of Yicha is how one speaks to a parent or perhaps more specifically, just how one provides or does not provide proper dignity 
to, to a parent. And that concept of kabedus is just how I address. Rabbi Glad talked about that in terms of the example of feeding the parent with the delicacies, but uh, doing it in a way that's disrespectful, because that, that's not kabedus avichavishimach. It's not the food that's primary. It's the demeanor, the approach, the attitude, as he put it. Kabedus So that's reinforced by the concept of this tefer charedim, kabedus avichavishimach, in terms of proper dignity. That's why you look in the, in the general literature as well. It's an article that, uh, that people are interested in. It's helpful. Ethical Issues in Dementia, authored by H. Richard Beresford, B-E-R-E-S-F-O-R-D, who's a doctor and a lawyer, M-D-J-D. If he was Jewish, he was a rabbi, he'd be a rabbi, doctor, doctor, lord. And if he'd be the chief rabbi, he could be rabbi, doctor, lawyer, lord, some, from, from whatever the case may be. So he's just a doctor, lawyer. So in another case, he has a very nice article, Ethical Issues in Dementia. So first, one of the points that he makes, which is a fundamental basic point, it's not a novel ideas, just in terms of the formulation, which I think is part of what, uh, what Rabbi Glatt was emphasizing and part of this idea of the basic definition of Kibbut of Aim, as he puts it, respect for autonomy. In, in the United States, we know that autonomy and self-determination is a very fundamental concept. Judaism also subscribes to autonomy with perhaps parameters that are, if you will, more defining than perhaps the general definition in the general society. But that concept of autonomy is a concept that applies specifically to Kibbutz as well, to ensure that a parent is able to maintain and sustain to whatever degree they are capable of physically and cognitively, autonomy and independence, then that's part of the kibbutz. That is the kibbutz. That is, that's part of how one speaks, meaning providing basic, how a parent feels about himself or herself. It's not just the physical enjoyment of food, it's how the parent feels about himself or herself, what their experience is. And when I speak to a parent in a certain way, then that generates a certain experience for that parent. And if I don't, then the experience is totally, totally disrupted and the food doesn't make the difference. That's a concept of autonomy. That's why Tosas has a, Tosas has a comment in Masechus Kedush, and the Sugi Rabbi Glatt was talking about, that how you define kibbutz. So Tosas has a comment there, which applies in universal terms, but specifically by Kibbutz of Aim is the Ritzono Shalodom Zehu Kibudo. That sometimes the definition of what's considered to be proper behavior towards a parent is based on what is the will of the parent within parameters. So if the parent's will is perhaps to stay home, there's a, there's a book that uh, I received um, from, uh, Rebbe, uh, from Dr. Solomon. Dr. Michael Solomon lives here in the community. Dr. Michael Solomon, noted psychologist. So he wrote a book that uh, may be useful to people as well. It's called Home or Nursing Home. That's the title of the book. Again, a thin, thin book, Home or Nursing Home. So Dr. Solomon talks about the idea of when it's appropriate to transition a parent to a skilledness nursing facility, whatever the uh, uh, a, uh, assisted living, whatever the case may be, and when it's appropriate to stay home. He has a significant emphasis on the fact that he feels that oftentimes skilled nursing facilities have a kind of negative reputation in the kind of the general society in the Jewish community talks about the issues of guilt in terms of how a child might feel by placing a parent and other aspects associated with that and he addresses a lot of that but the basic concept being that one of the factors certainly is what is the wish of the parent what does the parent want 
And obviously that has to be included in the determination together with what is realistic. What is it that we can provide for a parent at, at, in their home or in my home, whatever the case may be, what can't we provide? And can we optimize their care? Can we not? So that has to be. But part of it is to do with what does the parent want. That doesn't mean that everything a parent wants, we provide them. As well as, like I was talking about, Dr. Abraham in his Sefer Nishmas Avram uh, quotes just in terms of Machilo Mashkeus, Dr. Abraham quotes that uh, quotes from the Meforshim on the side of the Yoridea, quotes from the Sefer Chasidim, that if a parent instructs a child that he wants to have a certain type of food. So, and, and, and it's something that is contraindicated, not something that is relatively contraindicated or inappropriate. But let's say the parent wants, like, again, example, you have the parent's uh, diabetes. Rabbi Dr. Lett is an infectious disease. He's not an endocrinologist. So that's, that's why he's okay with the glucose. No, but he's right. That, uh, he's right. That, he's right that, that you have to use common sense. That's what, uh, when I was in medical, they used to teach us that's the art of medicine. That there's the clinical, there's the art of medicine, which is what you were talking about in terms of how to integrate the knowledge and address the patient as a human being, not look at lab values as the determinant, but what the person is. So as a result, that's, so it's a, the Dr. Abraham quotes from the Sefer Hasidim that if there's something that's truly inappropriate for a parent to ingest, and the parent says the phraseology is very striking, Vishal Hav Ben asks the son, let's say, to give him something that is, let's say, this, let's say the parent is NPO, the parent is not supposed to be taking in any fluids because of a concern of, or eating because of concern of aspiration, that they might breathe it in, if you will, into their lungs, which could result in, which is a very common complication, certainly in dementia patients of aspiration pneumonia, which could potentially lead to their demise. It's a very serious condition. So if there's something that's truly contraindicated, and the parent says, I want it, so he says, he says, he does one, he says to his son, Im lo li, lo I'm not going to forgive you, not in this world, not in the world to come. It's a very strong phraseology that a parent expresses to a parent. It's not uncommon when patients get into the stages of dementia that oftentimes they become less inhibited in terms of their expressiveness, and sometimes they can be verbally abusive to children. There's no question that that can happen. We'll come back to that in a moment. So the halach is that you're not obligated to, right, in fact, you're obligated not to listen, because if it's really going to potentially cause a serious outcome of aspiration pneumonia, so then the definition there is not based on ritsono. Someone has to balance what's ritsono, what is the parent's will, and what is truly to their to their to their benefit, and what's to their perhaps detriment. The concept of abuse is an important concept because one of the focuses on this presentation that we're presenting has to do with what are the parameters, what are the if you will limits to which I'm obligated to go in terms of my obligations. So. Uh, we referred to the fact that the, that that very powerful illustration in the Gemara about the child just kind of acquiesced and just kind of took it on the chin from the mother. So that that's uh, that's very clear. One is never permitted the term I'm going to use, which is not my term. I'll tell you where I got it from is never to retaliate against a parent. That I get. There's another book recently published by a uh, very fine Rav in Queens, Rabbi Ruven Becker, uh, and it's entitled "You Are Your Parent's Keeper." So he talked about the fact that a p- child is never permitted to retaliate against if a, if a parent abuses me or verbally or whatever, I'm never permitted to retaliate. I'm never permitted to retaliate. However, that doesn't mean that I'm obligated, as I understand, to subject myself to an environment of bizarion, of being disgraced. 
There's a difference between the two. Uh, Rabbi Litvak quotes in his Meforshim. It says in Shulchan Aruch that, uh, uh, that if a parent, it's a lot of this is again kind of overlapping with Rabbi Glad, so I'm just perhaps picking out certain other points of emphasis, that we know, it's pointed out, that um, the basic economic financial responsibility is to be burdened by the parent. And if the parent can't, so then it says in Shulchan Aruch, then it says that then I'm obligated to provide it, based on the interpretation of the Ramah, I'm obligated to provide financial support, not based on kibbutz of aim, some interpret, but based on the mitzvah of tzedakah. Meaning, I'm not obligated to financially fund my parents' care. That's their obligation. If they can't afford it, so then my obligation becomes like that to anyone else, that I'm obligated to help another human being based on tzedakah. And Sadaka has certain limitations. And, and that's where, Reglet pointed out, that's where the Ramoch says that if I have the world, well with, uh, I have the, the financial ability and I view this as a tzedakah and I limit it, so then the person receives that, that meira, that curse, because they have the capacity to help and they don't. That's based on, a, I don't know if it's the same Ksav Sofer, I'm interested. The Ksav Sofer has another comment. I don't know if it's in the same piece. The Ksav Sofer comments, on the Pasuk, Kasher Tzivcha Hashem Elokecha. In the second Aseris Nibrus in Voschanan, it says, Kabedes Aviecha Vesimach, Kasher Tzivcha Hashem Elokecha, as God commanded you. So what does it mean, as God commanded you? This is the commandment. So the Ksav Sofer says that God commanded the Jewish people in the desert to honor their parents. The Ksav Sofer says, and why should you honor your parents in the desert? If one assumes that the basis for Kibbutz of Aim is a kind of contractual reciprocal obligation. They took care of me all of these years. They dressed me, they fed me, they clothed me, they bathed me, they gave me everything. So I'm obligated to reciprocate. So the Pasik says, Kasher Tzivcha the basic obligation is independent of that. Because the basic obligation was presented to the Jewish people in the desert. In the desert, the parents did nothing for their children. All the food was provided from heaven. All the water was provided from the well. All the clothing never faded. They wore the same clothes day in, day out, everyone, or there was nothing the parents did for the children. So the Pesach says, yes, exactly, just as God commanded you in a situation where there is no basis to have to reciprocate to a parent, that's the nature of Kibbut of Aim. It's a kind of, there is, there is a certain intrinsic aspect of Kibbut of Aim that is kind of supra-halachic, that kind of obligates me independently. So that's what the, that's what the Ramah says, that I may not be, as you put it, chayiv, but I'm chayiv, meaning I'm not obligated. But if I have the wherewithal and I don't provide it to my parents, so that that's kind of def- that's defying the basic ethic of kibud of aim. But it says in Shulchan Aruch that I'm not obligated to be lachsor al psachim. If I can't afford it and they can't afford it, so I'm supposed to go around and try to collect, make appeals, and go around from door to door. So the Shulchan Aruch says I'm not obligated to do so. Why? Because I'm not obligated my, to subject myself to bizayon, to disgrace. It's very embarrassing. If I'm going to get up in front of uh, Kehillah, I'm going to go from door to door and ask her, could I please have some money because I can't afford it, my parents can't afford it, and I need to provide some care for them. That's bizayon. That's disgraceful to me. And I'm not obligated to subject myself. My parent abuses me, so I can't retaliate actively. But I'm not obligated to put myself in an environment in which I'm going to experience bizayon unless it is part of my direct care of the parent. Like if I'm feeding them, 
because they can't eat on their own, or I'm giving, dressing them, or I'm helping them to the bathroom. So that's also bizarre. That can also be very, very, depending on the individual and how I experience it, that can also be very uncomfortable, if not embarrassing or denigrating. But there I'm involved in the direct care of the parent. There I have to accept that level of discomfort or disgrace. But when I'm collecting funds, which is not the direct care of the parent, I'm not obligated to do so. That's why that's something to bear in mind in terms of determining what level of care I'm going to provide directly and what level of care I'm going to allocate to others in terms of what level of abuse I might be subjecting myself to, how much I can tolerate, how much of a big boy I am, and how much I'm a human being like anyone else. I'm not obligated to kind of compromise myself and, re and receive constant barrages of abuse, even if it's not coming from a place that's malicious. Because the fact is that it can still be very hurtful. It depends on me. That depends perhaps on my own inner strength. So maybe I need to work on that too, but that's besides the point. That doesn't mean that I have to subject myself. So that's, uh, that's something to bear in mind in terms of how one takes care of it. Its fundamental obligation is to ensure that the parent is taken care of. I can't abdicate that obligation. So Shulchanar talks about it in a situation that if Mishanitrofodaito, you referred to, if a parent basically loses their full faculties, their cognitive abilities, and their ability to exercise proper judgment has kind of faded to an extent, and they make demands on me that are unreasonable. So Shulchanar talks about, based on Gemaris, that I'm, to a certain degree, uh, to an absolute degree, I'm still obligated to secure their care. There's never a, a situation in which I'm permitted to kind of create a vacuum and abdicate my obligation. I always have to. The question is, do I do it personally or do I allocate it to a third party? Do I keep them in the home, in our home, in their home, or do I transfer them to a facility? So that depends on how much I can tolerate, how much I'm able to, what I can do to ensure. But as long as I take care of them, that's the fundamental responsibility. Just as, for example, in the, in the most recent volume of Ikros Moshe, uh, published by Rav David Feinstein, Rav David Feinstein, Rav Moshe David Tendler, so Rav Moshe has the following comment. Rav Moshe says two things. Rav Moshe says, as they quote from him, from his unpublished chuvas that they published posthumously, that fundamentally, even before the discussion, I'm obligated to spend a certain amount of money on this mitzvah. I'm obligated to spend money on any mitzvah. I'm obligated to spend money to buy a lulav and esrog, to buy matzahs. I'm obligated to spend money on any mitzvah fundamentally. So if I have to take off a day from work and I'm going to be docked that pay, I'm obligated to do so, says Reb Moshe. I'm obligated to. That's, that's not their money that they're obligated to pay. It's a mitzvah that I have to spend a certain amount of money. But Reb Moshe writes the following, which again kind of overlaps with what Rabbi Dr. Glatt was referring to. So Ramosha says exactly that. Venera da'afba bitl malacha, kind of taking off time from work, imhu sachor echad. If I'm hired, I, I'm, I'm an employee. The aviv wrote show, and the circumstances that the parent wants or the circumstance needs that I take care of my parent all the time, all day long, in the sense that they're going to fire me. They're not going to tolerate this. When I, when I was, I used to be a rabbi in Manhattan, the West Side Jewish Center on 34th Street. 
Uh, and the rabbi there for many years was Rabbi Shlomo Kahana for 40 years, uh, Rabbi Norman Lamb, his first position was at the West Side Jewish Center. Uh, he told me about it once. Uh, rabbi Benjamin Blech was there also. Many, many, this goes back many, many years before they became famous rabbis. So, uh, so I was there for a number of years after Rabbi Kahana retired before I came to Queens. So during that time, my father, Olav Shalom, passed away. Uh, I come from Detroit, so my mother's still in Detroit. I live in, I live here in New York, and my brother lives in Baltimore. And that's the two of us. So, um, during last year, my father's life, so he was, uh, whatever the situation was, he was in facilities. He, medically, he was not able to be, to be cared for anywhere else, just leaving out the specifics. So for about 11 months, about 11 months before he was in facilities. So my brother and I would kind of alternate every few weeks or so. I would go in during the week for a few days. Every few weeks he would go in Shabbosim because I work on Shabbos. My brother does not. So, so, uh, so he's a dentist in, in Baltimore. So, if, uh, so we would kind of alternate a little bit every few weeks. So my shul was very, 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 very gracious that they allowed me to go, you know, on a relatively frequent basis during the course of the week for a few days here and there. But but what if what if it wouldn't? What if it would have meant that there? What if it would, I would have lost my job? I would have lost my position. I would have had to go back to practicing medicine. What would what, what would what would I do? So so that's what Moshe says. You're not obligated to lose your job because of that. The obligation of spending money is spending money. But to totally, basically cause my life to become in like a permanent disarray, I'm not obligated to do so. Shafter always likes to quote from Pischei Tshuva. Pischei Tshuva quotes, this may or may not be popular, but nonetheless, Pischei Tshuva says that fundamentally, a child, if a parent says to a child, I don't want you to marry this person. So fundamentally, a child is not obligated to heed the words of the parent. That doesn't mean that the child shouldn't think about what the parent. Parents oftentimes have very good ideas and very good insight and can see things that children don't. It doesn't mean that I just reject and dismiss with the parent. It means that I should try to have a discussion with the parent. What is it that you're concerned about with this shidduch? What are you concerned? What is it that you see? But in the final decision, if I'm properly processing it and taking into consideration the concerns that my parents have, and I feel afalpikein, in spite of that, I think this is the right person for me. So Pizkei Shuva says, I'm not obligated to listen to my parents. So Shacht always explains, that's because that my life is not supposed to be kind of organized or run or determined by a parent. I have obligations of taking care of my parents, of respecting them, of making sure they're dignified. That doesn't mean that if they, if they, if they want me to be a rabbi and I want to be a doctor, or, or the other way around, whatever the case may be, that I'm obligated to run my life that way. So similarly, if my life is going to become totally disarrayed, I'm going to lose my profession, I'm going to lose my job, then I'm not obligated. Similarly, I think it's important to bear in mind, perhaps as a suggestion, in terms of sometimes, that's, uh, Rabbi Becker talks about this in his book, so he has an approach, so I'm suggesting slightly differently, you can look in his book to see about it, but if, let's say, the determination of whether to, let's say, have a parent live in our home, so it's certainly ideal if, if, if the dynamics are healthy between husband and wife, between children and grandparents and all of that, that can be an optimal, not only an optimal, it can actually be a very productive situation for all parties. But there are realistic situations in which if I bring my parents into my home, it's going to create a certain amount of friction. It's going to be hard for my wife, for example, or my children. So that's something to bear in mind, because that, like the bitul malacha, like losing my job, something that is going to disrupt my life in a way that is substantive and long-standing. It's one thing to bring a parent in for short-term 
transition. That's something that's reasonable. Or in uh, ideal situations, which are very common as well, to be able to do so on a regular continual basis. But it's something to bear in mind in terms of defining some of the parameters. So that's, that's uh, Moshe's idea that I think is worthwhile. Also, to uh, remind just a few perhaps last comments as well, and that is the following. The uh, the Ratzitz Eliezer, Dr. Abram refers to it, Ratzitz Eliezer has a very interesting comment, discussion. He was asked about a situation where parents were being taken care of at home, um, or maybe in their home, and the parent, because of the dementia, because of concerns, was basically creating a somewhat uh, dangerous situation for him or herself, and clinically, clinically, leaving out the clinical aspects of this, of when it is really necessary, needed to be restrained at least at times, let's say when they're up during the day and sitting in a chair, because otherwise they would get up, they would wander out of the house, or they'd fall, or they'd hurt themselves. So let's assume a, a real legitimate situation in which the parent needed to be restrained. So, so one answer to that is, with proper supervision and proper home care, that may not be necessary. But let's just assume the case, just for argument's sake, for the presentation of his concept. So the parent needs to be restrained with some you know, kind of straps. So the question that was posed to the Tzitzi Eliezer, Eliezer Waldenberg, uh, from Eretz Yisrael, from Yerushalayim, was whether the child is permitted to apply those restraints. So he analyzes the discussion, and he says that that's part of what the Shulchan Aruch means when it says that you should allocate the care to others. Not one part of that definition is if it's, I just can't do it. I, I'm, just, I'm not qualified, or I can't, I'm not set up, or perhaps emotionally I can't tolerate the abuse, whatever the case may be. But the basic definition, he says, of that din in Shulchan Aruch is allocating the care, is when there are things that I should not be doing for my parent. The parent needs to be secure and safe, but that's not something I should do if it's going to involve something that is disgraceful to the parent or hurtful to the parent. That I shouldn't be doing. I can refrain from providing something that's hurtful. I can refrain from providing food to a parent if they're going to aspirate it. But to restrain them, or somewhat perhaps similar to the issue of drawing blood, a little bit related as well, is the concept that to physically restrain them, that, that's something that a child should not do. Uh, unless there's an emergency situation that, you know, there's no one else around, and if they, right now they're going to fall, that's a difference. But on a regular basis, that's something that others should take care of. So there are certain things that, because of the kibu, because of the dignity of the parent, the child should not do that for, for, for the parent. That's uh, also something to, to bear in mind. One, uh, two, maybe just in closing, a few other points is the following. Thank God, I'm proud to say that uh, my brother and I, even though we used to fight when we were kids, um, he claims he always won, but he's not right. Um, but but <laughs> I, I, I'm very proud to say that he and I share a very, very positive relationship in the sense that we both took care of my father, Allah Shalom, when he was sick, as I referred to, and in terms of, you know, ongoing, in terms of keeping eye on our, on our mother, who's again in a different city than both of us, that we coordinate and work together in a positive way. My own experiences in the rabbinate certainly have demonstrated that, unfortunately, that's not always the case. Unfortunately, oftentimes there is either pre-existing or somehow kind of expressed by virtue of this situation in which there is discord, tension, disunity, disharmony between siblings or other members of the family, and that certainly can create a strain in terms. Certainly 
trying to facilitate open discussion and trying to come to common ground in terms of focusing on what's best for the parents, taking, taking into consideration the children as well. They're not supposed to be neglected and at deference to the parent, but balancing all of that is something that is oftentimes very challenging. That's oftentimes one of the most difficult and challenging situations, particularly if one child feels the care should be this way and the other child feels it should be that way. Children generally should share. Sharing doesn't have to be that equal. There are some situations in which, you know, one child maybe bears a certain greater amount of time responsibility, but they're fine with it, and the others do other things. That's how they work it out together. Also, just uh, in, in terms of a few last things, one of the important topics that Dr. Solomon talks about in his book is the concept that he refers to based on the research of what's called life satisfaction. Life satisfaction includes in part, but is broader than that, the issue of quality of life. And that, that's something that you're referring to in terms of life satisfaction, in terms of feeling productive, in terms of feeling useful, in terms of feeling dignified. That's kibbutz of aim, how one speaks to a parent. That is the fundamental, how they feel, what their experience is, not just what they indulge in. Uh, so life satisfaction is an important concept in terms of what, so life satisfaction, he argues significantly that life satisfaction can be accomplished in nursing facilities, skilled nursing facilities, sometimes even better than in home. That's again a situational by situational uh, decision as to whether in their home, whether in children's home, whether in a facility. But also he makes the comment, and that's important to bear his mind as well, he points out that it's oftentimes missed by clinicians as well, is the issue of depression. That parents, as they're aging, experience, whether full-blown clinical depression or subclinical depression, whatever the case may be, and to bear that in mind. And sometimes the part of the solution to that is, again, how the care is provided, what kind of activities, but some of it may have to do with a more fuller assessment and whether it does or does not involve medication. Lastly, just to mention, without going into it, so maybe prompt if there are questions about it, in terms of feeding. So the uh, issue often comes up, certainly in advanced dementia, the issue of feeding tubes, of placing pegs through the uh, gastrointestinal tract into the stomach and providing artificial nutrition and hydration through the peg. So that's something that's uh, just to mention it. I'm not going to comment on it now. If that's something that, that uh, people want to discuss in the question and answer, then I'm sure that uh, we can try to address that. So the bottom line, keep it of aim, is a complex situation in which there are basic fundamental obligations of viewing it as more than just another mitzvah, but there are limitations and parameters to beyond which I'm not obligated to necessarily go, taking into consideration the security of the parent, my own needs, my own life to a certain extent, my own dignity with that of the parent's dignity, and starting off with just how I address them, how I deal with them, leaving out all of the attendant aspects of taking care of their physical needs, which is the primary focus, oftentimes, and appropriately so, but with the background of the demeanor in mind, in terms of which is both and My, my rebuttal is I agree with everything that Rabbi Dr. Weiss said. Um, we're going to take questions now. Um, just raise your hand and please say who you would like to uh, direct your question to. And we will repeat the question just so that we have it for recorded purposes. 
helpful. We'll repeat the question. Okay. You mentioned, I'm a little confused, you mentioned about um, uh, the, the money comes out of the parents' pockets right there. But then all the examples you gave of where the money comes out of the, the child's pocket. So can you give some examples of when it comes out of the parents' pocket? Sure. The question was, again, dividing up the financial responsibilities <coughs> The basic din is that the Shulchan Aruch quotes that the financial obligations for the care are on the parent, but some of the examples we gave, or many of the examples that we gave, were actually where the child picks up the responsibilities. So the, an- the answer, in a nutshell, is that you are obligated to do certain things for your parents. Those obligations that you have come out of your pocket where it's something that the parent essentially is supposed to be doing and you're assisting them in that, then technically it comes out of your parents' pocket. The overriding additional factor is really the financial circumstances that the parent finds themselves in and the financial circumstances that the child finds themselves in. And then there are also things that aren't clear-cut, or maybe benefits or extras as to who should provide them. The bottom line is, and each case needs to be looked at individually, it's very hard to puskin in, 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 in theory, but you really need to go when these questions come up, and they do come up, to erupt to say, well, who is supposed to pay for the nursing home, and who is supposed to pay for the trips to uh, uh, Detroit to see the parent, and who is supposed to say, uh, pay for um, things beyond the regular care? Who's supposed to pay for the co-pays? So many of these things are shyless that do need to be addressed. The bottom line is, is if you're capable of paying for them, don't make it into a shayla. If you're not capable of paying for it, then you have to ask a shayla. If I can't afford it, it means I won't be able to pay tuition for my kids, I won't be able to help my children buy a house, I won't be able to, uh, uh, you know, fix a leak in my roof. So then you sometimes have to go ask a shayla. And in all of the cases that we described where there were physical bizionos, in addition to the emotional bizionos, where the, where the mother of Dabba bin Nasina ripped his cloak, the Gemara gives other cases where they threw your wallet over the side of the boat into the ocean, uh, and they sat there and did nothing. So there's two aspects of it. One is to sit there and not embarrass them or retaliate, as Rabbi Dr. Weiss said. That's absolutely usher. But the shach brings down, you're allowed to take him to court and get back that wallet from a monetary point of view. So, oy vavoy, Rahman al-Islam, that somebody has to take their parent to court to get back something. So you have to distinguish between what halacha obligates you and what may be lifnei mishuras hadin, but will get you tremendous more reward. If you can Baruch Hashem afford to say, okay, so they ripped the garment, so it's a hundred bucks that I lost, a thousand bucks that I lost, and Baruch Hashem, you can sustain that loss. It's not going to mean no, no food on the table for your children. Your children can't go to the doctor. They can't get a vaccine. They can't get something that's essential. If Baruch Hashem, you're in that financial situation, then that's, to me, the, the easiest way to earn yourself tremendous olam haba by saying, I'm going to forego taking my parent to court to get back that wallet or garment that they destroyed. On the other hand, if the circumstances don't allow it, so then, yeah, there, there are shilas that need to be asked under exactly what circumstance the parents are obligated to pay. 
and what, what, what situations. No, you have an obligation to pay. And sometimes these can be very large amounts of money that you're talking about. And sometimes there'll be Yerusha that will eventually pay for it. Sometimes there isn't a Yerusha that will pay for it. So the, these things are complicated. You're not mukhiv to go begging, as, as Dr. Weiss pointed out. But in, again, in certain situations, it's your obligation. You're not going begging for them. You're really going begging for yourself. So you have to look at it. I can't answer that better than I have without being told this is the specific facts that we're dealing with. But in sometimes, yeah, the obligation may be theoretically on the parent, but practically it comes back to the child. And this happens more and more frequently when the child, Baruch Hashem, is of the situation where he's capable of affording it. And even though he may not be absolutely obligated bin Hadin, what higher form of kibbutz aim and stalker is there than, than using those funds that you have instead of for the 14th summer home that you have to go and buy for the parent? If I may add just one, one uh, addendum as well, and that is, I don't know if there are any um, elder care lawyers present here, but uh, one of the ways to address that, you know, practically speaking, financially, is if there really is a financial concern, then to consult with an elder care attorney in terms of how to kind of arrange funding and how to do various things within, obviously, consistent with tax law and, and other things that can allow for improvement in addition to the shyless and the ethical and halachic issues, some practical in terms of elder care attorneys. So in a situation where one, like, like you mentioned, is not in this, cannot be with their parents on shyless, for example. So for most people who work, that leads one day, Sunday, to, I guess, visit or take care of their parents. And of course, now there's a time conflict with one of, with one's own children and wife and other needs. Is there a luck of balance on how much time one is obligated to spend, or you know how do you balance the time issue when you're so mm-hmm. full of it? Um, so I, I don't think that there's a specific form. What? The question was that uh, if if a person is presented with limited time to be able to spend time and attend to a parent, like for example on on a Sunday person is working all, all week longer. I guess in terms of balancing that with other familial obligations, with children, with spouses, things like that. I don't think there's a specific time allotment formula in terms of how much time was obligated. I think it's more a question of quality and trying to, of course, balance the two. S- certainly, and it also depends on the nature of the relationships that I have with my children or with my spouse, and that will certainly determine. Obviously, in a healthy relationship, uh, a spouse, uh, uh, my spouse understands those and therefore deservedly understands that I will spend time with my spouse appropriately and also take away some of that time. The, the understanding of an understanding spouse is not therefore a permit for me to say that I'm going to neglect my spouse every Sunday or whatever the case may be or neglect my children. That's a judgment that one has to make in understanding one's relationship with the spouse and with the children. Uh, what's considered to be essential for this relationship and maintaining it healthy because again, I'm trying to maintain many healthy relationships and none of them should really suffer because of the other. Certainly, my marriage should not suffer because of that. My children shouldn't suffer because of that. It's one thing if I can't go, let's say, to a, to a, to a Nick game with my child. But if it's, let's say, let's say it's the playoff. Let, let's say, literally, it was the seventh game, uh, which was Friday night, so we wouldn't have been going. But let's say, whatever the case may be, let's say they're in, finally, and, the, and I have tickets for the final game. 
and my child's looking forward to that. So that it's not a question of time there, it's a question of the circumstance. The circumstance is that t- how meaningful that will be for my child for me to go to that seventh game. So in that case, then that time should be spent with my child. If it's just an average game at Shea Stadium or Yankee Stadium, then that's a different story. And to then say we're, we're going to go a different time and schedule this, we're going to go instead of this date, we'll go June or whatever the case may be. Similarly with terms of spouse, in terms of having understanding. So it's not a question I think of time allotment, it's a question of balancing that and making sure that a parent is taken care of. Obviously, if I don't show up at my parents' home, we're assuming that it's not a question of neglect. The parent is taken care of anyways in terms of visiting. So, and again, it depends on the level of awareness of the parent that I, to explain to the parent or share with the parent that uh, I'm going to come to this, this Sunday, I can't come or I can come, I'm going to come for a half an hour. I wish I could stay longer, but, uh, you know, Johnny has this thing or, or you know, had the thing at school or whatever the case may be. I'm going to be there and, uh, and, and again, you know, and maybe I'll take pictures for you to bring back the next time so you can see what we did at the Nick game or whatever the case may be. So kind of perhaps integrate them as well or something along, basically along those lines. And, and I'll just make one additional comment. I agree with almost everything that Dr. White said. Okay. I must point out that it was the sixth game of the playoffs, <laughs> not the seventh game of the playoffs. So a, 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 a very important ticket. Right. But I would but thank add, God it wasn't the last. Uh, <laughs> but I would add one thing. Technology is a wonderful, mm-hmm. wonderful tool. And I'll give you a halacha lemaisa that my father-in-law, Shlita, she continued to do well, is in Florida. So we, tra- we taught him, it wasn't easy, but we taught him a new thing called FaceTime. Those that you know what it is will know what it is. Those of you who don't, it's, uh, forget it. <laughs> so you can take your cell phone or your, uh, your pad, your tablet or whatever, and you can actually have them have conversations. The older Skype is already uh, passe. So there, there's technology that allows you, well, I can't travel the two hours, but I can put my kid on with them and let them see the grandchildren, great-grandchildren, see us, talk to them, where in the olden days, well, this wasn't possible. And how many of us remember the aerograms to Israel? Right? Okay. So Baruch Hashem, those no longer exist. I'm sure they do, but they don't. So there's technology. You're at the game, and you can MMS them the picture of your kid catching the ball. Right? Isn't that a wonderful thing? They'll get just as much nachas almost as being there, and they might even be a little bit happy that they don't have to go to the game. <laughs> so technology is a wonderful way in so many areas, in terms of even or in other situations where you can almost be there even though you're not there. And the phone always works, and there's no excuse for people who live far away, that you don't even have the minutes anymore, and they certainly don't have AT&T long distance. You know, nobody uses that anymore. The ability to contact a parent who doesn't live right nearby, one of the advantages of technology, with all of the many, many uh, challenges it presents, is that technology allows you to develop and maintain relationships far better than they, they used to when you, you might not see a parent for 20 years because they lived in, in a different place and you'd hope with the letter that you could communicate and keep in touch. So I would just add, you have to find the fine balance, as Reverend Dr. Weiss mentioned, but there are many ways to find the fine balance that maybe five years ago, two years ago, weren't as easily accessible. You're, you're sitting at the game, your kids uh, in a, you know enjoying themselves, you're, you're, you're maybe not, and, and so that's a great time to pick up the phone and call mom, call, call the parent. 
and other examples abound, but we'll go to the next question. Can I one just one la- one technological just one aspect that comes up? There's a machlokis in the poskim. Most poskim assume that one can't fulfill the mitzvah of havdalah, for example, by listening to someone make it on the phone. There is a minority opinion that says that one can. So, in my in my opinion, I'm not the local posik, but my opinion that if uh, let's say a parent is somewhere and can't get and they no, no one's there to make havdalah, uh, so you call them at the end of Shabbos to make havdalah for your family and for them to listen to. So I think that the minority opinion that says you can is more than Roy Lismo Chaleim to rely on them in a situation like that where it could be meaningful for a parent to feel that, you know, they're at the end of Shabbos, we're not just calling, you know, four Shabbos, sacred Shabbos, we call them, we have Dole, kind of connected, wherever the case may be, things like that. Megillah reading is a possibility, you know, as well, even though, again, most would say maybe you can't fulfill, but sometimes the decision of whether to do something or not is not only based on the technical fulfillment or not, it's based on the emotional component as well. Can you give well? Can you give it a, an example? Not, not necessarily really, but just as an example of just to illustrate one example, so people have a concrete. Uh, Well, just okay. So let's. So there are two parts to your question. One part of the question is, well, I guess the focus was what to do or what rabbanim should do or rabbanim are doing or what someone should do uh, about two aspects. Number one, when children are not responding as they should, and number two, if they are aggressively or taking advantage of or abusing actively parents. Those are two different circumstances. In terms of the first, if children are not responding, so that's not easy for anyone to resolve. First of all, it may not be something that's evident. If it does become evident, which does happen, Rabona certainly become, if they get involved in a situation, it may become evident that this child is not being as proactive or that the children are making decisions that you feel as the Rav are inappropriate. They're deciding, let's say, to not provide nutrition and hydration as an example. So Rabbanim can engage in conversations. No one can coerce or force anyone to make decisions. I can't make decisions on behalf. It can be very frustrating for Rabbanim to see decisions that we feel are either medically inappropriate or, or halakhically or both. So one can engage in conversations with individuals uh, ultimately, though, those conversations may or may not prevail. Sometimes they can. Sometimes they can have some effect. The second issue in terms of children who are kind of abusing elders, that I, 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 I'm trying to think if I've ever been aware of such a situation actively. Um, I, don't, I can't honestly say that I can think of one. Um, and, but if, if there is a situation like that, so if it's truly abuse 
in a way that needs to be addressed, whether that requires reporting or not. I don't know. That one Rav would have to consult with the elder care attorney and determine whether it is or something reportable. But again, engaging in a conversation with the child, not confronting per se or threatening, but engaging in a conversation, trying to address that, you know, just notice I'm wondering whether you think that's the best way to do it or, or maybe we should do this or you should do that or whatever. That's, that's certainly what a Rav is supposed to try to do in terms of trying to facilitate conversation. I, I would just add to that, uh, I, I think there is a halachic, medical, ethical, and legal obligation to report elder abuse just like there is for child abuse. And there are guidelines and, and sanctions that can be placed upon the person who doesn't report. And absolutely, if there's truly a suspicion of abuse going on, then anybody who's aware of it should bring it to the appropriate attention of the appropriate people without saying who that may or may not be. So any Rav, any doctor, any uh, social worker who is aware that there's abuse going on absolutely has a chiv to address it. Now, how you address it, that will depend on the capabilities of addressing it. And that maybe I'll take the liberty of answering the question that you asked, um, what are the Rabbanim doing about it? And, and I'll, I'll throw this out. You may or may not like what I'm going to say, but it's 100% true. If people go through their entire life, and there's a famous Maisa with the Chafetz Chaim when he was asked to, which uh, maybe I won't say because it's just a time, but th- basically I'm saying what the Chafetz Chaim said. If people go through their entire life not listening to the Rav. And the Rav said this on Shabbos, ah, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And they dissect his drasha on the way home and say to their children, well, the Rav is wrong, or the principal is wrong, the Rebbe is wrong. Then 30 years later, they go to the Rav and say, why aren't you addressing this problem? And how come you can't convince my child or, or whoever it is <coughs> to do the right thing? And the Chavetz Chaim basically said, well, for 30 years you've dissed the Rav. For 30 years you've said that the Rav is wrong and doesn't know what he's talking about. And now you expect the Rav to come to your rescue? So in a situation where the Rav has the authority vested in him by the Torah, and where the Rav, and I'm really speaking as a Balabas here, not as the Rav. Rabbi Bilich Shlit is the Rav, whatever community you live in. When the Rav is given the honor and respect that the Rav has to have from all of the Balabatim, then the Rav will be able to solve many, many more of your problems than if the Rav is not given the... Oh, you don't have to listen to him. My Rav says this. My Rabbi says this. I saw in the paper it says this. Maybe it says this. And when the Rav isn't given the tremendous respect and kavod in every other event, it's silly to expect that Rav to now come to the rescue <coughs> if he's been disrespected for 30 years. You alluded before to the question of feeding tube. Let's flip the point you just talked about. The parent doesn't want to have a feeding tube, but halacha, or as a, as a child, you feel that it's important to have it. How do you deal with those issues? Um, okay, so I think probably both of us probably want to comment on this. So in terms of uh, feeding, so let's assume the situation clinically is appropriate for a feeding tube. I'm not talking about, let's say, somebody who's like literally end stage of whatever the case may be is imminently dying, in which case one may consider that feeding through artificial feeding tubes or placing one may not be appropriate. I'm not saying it is or isn't. Let's assume that the parent is, you know, not terminally ill. The parent has a as a kind of debilitating progressive disease, uh, but they, they've expressed their wishes, the, either relevant for now or relevant in the future, that if they get to the point 
now or in the future where they're not able to swallow appropriately, eat on their own, that they don't want uh, procedures to be done to place a feeding tube. So the first thing to do, just clinically, is to either have a physician discuss, or if the child's capable, discuss, or maybe all three discuss what exactly it is. Oftentimes people have a misconception of what feeding tubes are. Uh, even, even, even clinicians have a misconception of what feeding tubes are. Uh, typically, feeding tubes are oftentimes described as invasive procedures that have all kinds of complications. It's invasive to a degree, they has potential complications to a degree, but in the hands of a good astroenterologist, it takes about 20 minutes to place. In the care of proper nursing or care, there's no, it should not result in greater aspiration pneumonia or irritation of the, you know, the site of placement. It depends how it's taken care of. So it doesn't have to. So number one is to have clear understanding on the part of the parent what exactly is it that's involved so that they have an understanding that this isn't some kind of, it's not like being on a ventilator. That is a very traumatic, very, 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 very discomforting experience being on a ventilator. That's very different than a feeding tube, um, number one. Number two is that if, uh, that engage in, in discussion why it is that the parent doesn't want the feeding tube. What is it that they're concerned about? Again, trying to elicit for them to have a greater understanding. And if, in the bottom line, they understand, they're not depressed, they fully appreciate, and they simply don't want to be fed artificially and in a stage where they perhaps don't have their cognitive abilities, they just want to be left alone. So even though most Polskin would assume there is an obligation to feed, I think the general consensus would be that that's their obligation. If they're deciding they don't want to carry out that obligation, I'm not obligated and perhaps I'm not permitted to impose that on them. Moshe has such a tshuva, he's talking about IV, he's talking about intravenous fluids, and he's talking about the concern about a, cogniz a cognizant patient, about the trauma kind of forcing an intravenous line into them and feeding. I think the basic concept applies as well, um, that, that if to force a patient to undergo a procedure that either they don't want now or we know from the past they don't want, even if it may not be the correct decision halakhically or even medically, one is not obligated and I think one is not permitted to force that. That becomes the parent's decision. That was their decision, not mine. I, I, I agree. I just would add a couple of caveats. Medically, a feeding tube isn't always the answer for a person who's not eating. And one has to make sure that the feeding tube discussion is taking place in the right context from a medical point of view. Treating somebody who's capable of eating, but it's a little bit easier to feed them with a feeding tube is not the same thing as saying the person is incapable of using their mouth to ingest food and the alternative is starvation versus no nutrition. Sometimes feeding tubes are put in for convenience and that's a whole different question and, 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 and it needs to be addressed. Whose convenience are we dealing with? And while I agree that feeding tubes are relatively uncomplicated, they do involve some level of anesthesia, some level of conscious sedation, some level of pain, some level of discomfort that halachically allows a person who's conscious and capable of making that decision to say they do not wish to undergo it or that they do wish to undergo it and the child may have a difference of opinion. In general, where the parent is capable of making the decision, the person who's having the procedure is capable of making the decision, 
they should be the ones that should make that decision with their rov as the appropriate person to ask Shilas to, rather than the children. The children are sometimes in Ogea Badovar. They have ulterior motives that may be positive or may be negative. And they have, well, I have to go feed them every day. It takes me an hour to feed them lunch, and this way we can just have the attendant hang up the bottle. Well, whose who's keyboard is that? So there are a lot of questions from a technical medical point of view before you get to the halachic point of view. And from the halachic point of view, there are major differences amongst different poskim in terms of what your obligations are in, in regards to a feeding tube. There are many poskim who say that's an essential component of care, that you don't have the luxury of not taking advantage of that if that is medically appropriate and indicated. But that there are posts... Correct. That's the patient. They're going back to the point that you were emphasizing. Right. The obligation on that. Well, the patient may have an obligation to undergo that. You don't have the right, according to halacha, to do whatever you want with your body. That's a secular ethic that halacha doesn't fully agree with. Halacha says you're not the master of your own body, and sometimes you have to do things because that's what the halacha demands, and even though you may not want it. Now, those are actually few and far between, but it's an important, at least technical point. So where the halacha demands that you put it in, one needs to try to convince the patient. We're not living in the time of Sanhedrin. We're not living in the time of based being able to strap somebody down and, and doing what might be halachically indicated. However, at the same time, halacha sometimes does give a leeway, and sometimes it's a, a choice that the patient or the children may have in placing a feeding tube. And asay l'charab means you don't go shopping around for the kula or the chumrah. Whoever you ask your halachic decisions to, which should be a rav that knows you and not a godol who doesn't know you. Let your rav ask if he needs to ask shilas to gedolim, but each person should have their rav that they ask all their shilas to. That's really the way the system is supposed to be set up. Not that everybody calls Rav Moshe up at 2 in the morning and says, what should I do when he doesn't know you? The, ra- the proper halachic perspective is that your local community rav or whoever you use as your rav should be the person that you ask your shilas to. And if and when it's too big for his shoulders, then he'll ask his rabbeim and he'll ask the gedolim in, 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 in those appropriate situations. But the Rav knows the scenario. And the Rav knows many things that the gadol may not know. And the halachic process is, asay l'chorav means you're supposed to ask your Rav. And not that everybody has to funnel every single shayla up to Rav Moshe. There's a famous story with Shlomo Zalman. He was asked a question by somebody. And the person asked him this question was very impressive. Rizal Zalman started stroking his beard and started walking about. And he walked him to the window and he motioned to him to come over here. And he said, in the person's perspective, wow, I really stumped Rizal Zalman. And Rizal Zalman pointed out the window and said, yeah, see that house over there? That's where your Rebbe lives. Ask him that, Shiloh. <laughs> very important idea that the local Rav shouldn't be bypassed in these things. He's the one that knows the family situation. He's the one that knows whether it's a shasat chak here, he, he knows under this situation, you should be mitzarif, vashita, that we normally don't paskin like, but allowed to paskin like. There are many factors that the gadol in the abstract may have more knowledge, but doesn't know how to paskin that case as well as the local rough. Just one last uh, point in general, just because it wasn't mentioned, and it's, I think, essential to be mentioned. That is, whatever in terms of decision-making, uh, can't emphasize enough that uh, there should be, when a parent has the ability, implementation and execution of a health care proxy. Whatever, whether one uses the AGUDA, the RCA, New York State, whatever the case may be, our AGUDA and RCA allow for identification of a ROV to be included in that discussion as well. But a health care proxy is a 
essential to try to ensure that that invest directive is placed earlier on so that decisions can be made more smoothly. We're running a little bit uh, over time, so we have time for two more questions. Um, taking from Dr. Hosting and Dr. Burr. So my question is, can you provide us some practical examples of Kiva Alpha Amy after the death of one's parents? Very interesting question. Kibbutz aim after parents' death. So in Shulchan Aruch, if you look in in, in Reish Mem in Yaridaya, so it, it talks exactly that the obligation to still do Kibbutz aim exists after the parents' death as well. And the examples that Shulchan Aruch gives are the ones that I'll give you, but there are many, many others. If you can get something done based upon your own reputation, you go to a store, Paul, and you know they're gonna give you something. Uh, a better quality of meat because of you. When you go to the store and say, you know, in the schus of my father, I'd like to have the, the higher quality. So it says, he's supposed to say, in the schus of my father. They shouldn't give it to you in your zuchus, you should get it in the father's zuchus. If a person says, I learned something, right? He should say, in the name of my father, in the first 12th month, you say, Hareni kaparis mishkavo. I should be a kapara. This, what I'm doing, should be an atonement for his resting. After the 12 months, it says you should say, Zichron Olivracha. Or you say, Avi Mari, Zichron Olivracha, my father, my teacher of blessed memory. So these are ways that a person can be mechabed, a parent, even after their death. Certainly, all the laws of not being mezalzal chas v'shalom in a parent, they certainly are applicable afterwards, but of course, nobody would do that, so that rarely comes up, hopefully. But there is an obligation brought down in Shulchan Aruch that there is still a concept of kibbutz avayim even after the parent's death. Just to to uh, add to that, uh, the Gemara says mechav de mechay mechav de leacher misa. The, the obligation it continues. As Regla uh, pointed out, uh, Rav Shechter in one of his Swarm quotes, Rav Soloveitchik, that the concept of mora avayim, namely respect and deference, continues. Uh, absolutely afterwards in terms of uh, respect and not disgracing, in terms of benefiting the parent, uh, examples that uh, Rabbi Glatt referred to, and in terms of viewing, I think, the parent that uh, if I can't benefit the parent physically, because I can't give them to drink or things like that, but their neshama still exists, their neshama is still alive, and one can still benefit the neshama, whether it's in, you know, learning or this or whatever the case may be, there's still a potential benefit for the neshama, so that's kibud to the neshama. Uh, maybe not kibud to the physical corpus, but to the neshama as well. I just wanted to address uh, uh, both of you. You people are knowledgeable. You're medical with definitions, and you are also very knowledgeable in life at the end of, uh, end of life. Whereas the local Rabbanim that you are referring to really have no idea what the, uh, of course, each patient is different. But I was wondering if you can address about DNR and about the ventilators, mm-hmm. uh, things like that. Uh, the children have the proxy to go ahead and make a decision, but uh, I know it's a touchy subject and each one is different, but what ultimately is the standard for putting a patient on a ventilator or a DNR? <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm happy to address it. I think it's very simple. I have a very simple answer. I'm sure Rabbi Weiss will, will also want to comment on this. So let me repeat the question first. The question is, 
not every rabbi is also a physician. And, and how are they supposed to know, I'll paraphrase and answer your question, how are they supposed to know to deal with some of these very difficult medical decisions in order that they can come to the right halachic conclusion? And I have a very, very simple etza. It's called conversation. I think it's critically important that the Rav discuss the medical facts with a knowledgeable person that can explain it to him. I can't tell you how many times people call me up for Shilas about this, and I know they're transmitting incorrect medical information because I'm a doctor. And they tell me, oh, this thing has to go like this. I say, no, it doesn't. That's wrong. If that's what they're telling you, then let's start again because they're giving you wrong information. They go back to the doctor quickly and say, oh, yeah, you know, Taka, you were right. And if the Rav is given wrong information, I guarantee you the Rav will pass him correctly for the case that he's been provided, but wrong for that patient. And it's critical that if there's a family member who's a physician that can transmit the case information correctly to the Rav, I, I, I discuss these things with, with Rabbanim that are much, much, much greater than me. I can present to them, hopefully, the medical information correctly. The fact that the Rav is not a physician doesn't mean he can't pass in the Shaila. It just means he has to be given the facts correctly. And when you go to a rabbi who's a, a Talmud Chacham and is capable of passing these Shailas, not all Rabbanim want to, and they may defer it to somebody for these very reasons that they don't feel comfortable with it. But if you're going to a Rav who probably has a tremendous amount of experience in a Kehillah doing this, so it's critical that a family member who's a physician or a professional, or the physician who's taking care of the patient themselves, speak with the Rav, with the, with the children or whoever else present, not to exclude them, and they have a phone conference call to say, these are the facts. What does the halacha say? The halacha may be absolutely in favor of something. Halacha may be absolutely against it. Or the majority of the times the halacha says it depends. And putting in a ventilator, putting a patient intubating them, putting them on a ventilator, uh, deciding beforehand a DNR, do not intubate, a DNR, do not resuscitate, which are complicated ideas if you're not familiar with them that I won't be able to explain in 20 seconds. But these are complex medical shilas that need to be addressed by the rov with the appropriate knowledge. And absolutely, it's acceptable halachly to sign a DNI or DNR in some cases. It's absolutely forbidden to sign a DNI, DNR in some cases. And in sometimes it depends. What does the patient want? What does the family want? There is no one answer fits all. If anybody ever tells you, and I heard this this week from a Rav, and the Rav unfortunately didn't know the medical facts. And he told them, you're not allowed to sign a DNR. Maisa Shahaya this week. And the Rav was wrong. That doesn't mean that the Rav was wrong. The facts were presented to him incorrectly. And in fact, I thought Laniaz Dati was absolutely permissible to sign a DNR, and just the facts and the circumstances need to be explained. The default position, almost always, when you don't know, it's 2 in the morning and the patient is being rushed in, and you can't either get the Rav or the doctor to get together, the default position that I always take is do everything. But that's only if you haven't discussed it beforehand and gotten the Shaila's answer beforehand, which is the best way. When somebody, Rahman Wassan, gets suddenly ill, my default position is always do everything until you know for certain that you shouldn't do everything because you can never take it back. Once you make a decision not to intubate, two days later, you can't say, oh, I didn't know that I should or should not have. Now, the ideal time to decide this is when everybody's healthy and well. Very few people do that. And it's critically important that Safiq Bikoch Nafashas, we go Luchumra. Unless you know for sure that you can go Lukula, whichever way Luchumra and Lukula is. So these things need to be discussed, preferably when everybody's healthy and well, 
or we know something's going to occur in two weeks, they're undergoing a procedure, or they did get sick and now we have to make decisions, that's the time to make it, not at 2 o'clock in the morning when the patient's breathing at a rate of 40, oxygenation is poor, and you get a call, should we or should we not intubate the patient? That's the worst time to make a decision. If you call up a Rav who doesn't have a medical background, you're basically not doing yourself or the patient or the Rav a favor. Um, I don't have much to add, just uh, absolutely DNR really depends on the circumstance. There's no question uh, about that. Um, there are sometimes, uh, and sometimes not, there are some Rabbanim who are concerned about implementing DNRs even when they are appropriate because they're concerned that the attitude of the healthcare team will be less responsive to other considerations. I don't personally think that that is categorical by any stretch of the imagination um, and that that should not, in my opinion, be used as an absolute criterion. It, it, it can happen, and it does happen. And I think that there's literature about that as well, in the general literature, about implementing a DNR and then the attitude towards the patient changes. That's a bona fide consideration. It's not an absolute contraindication to DNR. What happens with the patient afterwards largely depends on who the advocates are and what the family is there and the, and the physician, family physician, all of that. But just to mention that. In terms of ventilator, ventilator is you know, a, a very complicated question, needless to say. It's complicated primarily, for two re primarily because once a person is intubated and placed on the ventilator, if they are unable to be weaned, then that becomes one of the few examples in medical clinical situations halakhically where withholding or stopping the treatment is very, very difficult halakhically to do. Uh, unlike other treatments that are intermittent uh, versus this treatment which is continuous, so it's something that's complicated because once the patient is on the ventilator, withdrawing it is very complicated halakhically. Uh, not, in not implementing it is also complicated halakhically, but there with advanced discussions and things, there can be a situation in which one knows not to intubate. Thank you very much, Rabbi Dr. Weiss and Rabbi Dr. Blatt. And once again, thank you to the Weichholz family and to Dr. Cloud Medical Technology Consultants. It is due to sponsors such as you that we students are able to bring you these events. This morning's lecture and many others brought to you by the Yeshiva University Student Medical Ethics Society and the Center for the Jewish Future can be found online at yutorah.org and our events and information at yumedicalethics.com. Thank you all for coming and have a wonderful day.